It's always about the garden. Our text this morning is Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We pray that you would open your word to us, open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts, and help us to be hearers and doers of your word, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our old house back in Los Angeles, I attempted to turn our backyard into a garden. The yard was filled with weeds, and so I used a small, cheap rototiller, which barely broke the hard, dry ground. So I researched it more and had a garden epiphany. To do things right, you need to get the right tools. In the Bible, the theme of garden runs right down the center. And this morning, in the Gospel of Luke, we'll see garden epiphany. Garden epiphany. Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 22. Luke 2, verse 22. And it says there in verse 22, And when the time for their purification, according to the law of Moses, came, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord. A pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now this comes from the command of God back in Exodus chapter 13 and verse 2. It says there, consecrate to me all the firstborn, whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and beast, is mine. The firstborn males of man and beast among Israel are to be consecrated, set apart as holy to the Lord. Why is this? Because it's all pointing forward, pointing forward to the firstborn son, the only begotten son, as Jesus is brought into the temple this very day, this particular command of God is being fulfilled. There would have been a 40-day period of purification for a male before presentation at the temple. 40 days, we see that over and over again. A generation a completeness is coming to an end. The temple was a symbolic gate to the garden. But because of the fall of Adam and Eve, humanity was held back. Think about this for a minute. The garden in the beginning must have been on some plateau, perhaps a mountaintop. We're told that the rivers run forth from the garden, and rivers always run downhill. What was the garden about? It was that special trysting place where God came and met with his people, where God came down and met with man, but because of the fall, mankind has been kept out of the presence of God. And so God begins to restore things. God goes through the process of bringing humankind back near once again. If you look at the tabernacle and you look at the temple, it's as though you're ascending a mountain, as though you're drawing closer and closer to the presence of God. When you come into the temple, the very temple that Jesus would have been brought into this very day there. You would have come into a large courtyard where all people were welcomed, even Gentiles. You would have come up to another courtyard, and there if you had a sacrifice, you would meet a priest who would then sacrifice that animal for you, but you were not allowed into that next precinct. It is as though you were going up into the presence of God. Then you came into the temple itself, and you had the holy place, the outer room, and there only the sons of the high priest would go in. You're ascending higher. And then finally, you would come into the Holy of Holies. It had a tapestry in the front that had cherubim woven into it, just like the cherubim with the flaming sword that kept Adam and Eve out of the garden. The tapestry's there to protect the holiness of God. No one's allowed in except the high priest 
once a year. And so you finally ascend up to the very presence of God. And no one's allowed to come in except the high priest. It's the garden. And we see here that as Jesus is brought in with his family, he's kept out of the garden. He's brought as near as he can come, but not into the holy place where God's presence is. Joseph and Mary give a poor man's offering. You see, if you had some funds, you would give a lamb plus some doves. If you were poor, you gave pigeons or two doves and two pigeons. The treasure that the Magi had brought by this point in time has been used up in their trip down to Egypt. Verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Here we have an old prophet. He's been waiting in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit is upon him. And this is a peculiar thing in the Old Covenant. The Holy Spirit comes and goes in peculiar ways in the Old Testament period. At the day of Pentecost, the Spirit's poured out promiscuously upon the people of God and does not depart. But in the Old Covenant, the Spirit came and went. The Spirit came in peculiar ways. He came upon the craftsmen who made the furnishings that went inside the tabernacle and later into the temple. The Holy Spirit comes down on people when they prophesy things concerning the Lord. But the Holy Spirit also comes and rushes upon men, people like Samson, Saul, and David, and they go out and strike down the enemies of God. But here we've got an old prophet in Jerusalem. The Spirit is upon him. God has revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. Now here in the Greek, it says here the consolation of Israel. It's paraklesen to Israel. Paraklesen. That word sound familiar? Parakletes? Paraclete? Remember, the Spirit's called the Comforter, the Paraclete. So he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Literally, he's waiting for the aid, encouragement, and comfort of Israel. Verse 27, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. When the parents had brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms, and he blessed God and said, Simeon is in the temple. In the temple grounds, outside the garden of the Holy of Holies, Christian tradition identifies Simeon as the officiating priest of the day, which would explain his parents' willingness to allow him to take him up in his arms and give a blessing. Verse 29, now we hear Simeon speak. Perhaps he chanted. Maybe the words of this sound familiar. Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. Of course, it's the song of Simeon. We sing this every week after we've taken the Lord's Supper, for we too have seen the Lord's salvation. Oftentimes I'll get people to visit the church and they go, what was that weird song you sang after the Lord's Supper? And I say, it's Luke chapter 2. It's word for word. Luke chapter 2. It's the canticle of Simeon. Now as a reminder, a canticle is a song in the Bible. You've got songs like the song of Miriam and the women by the side of the sea when God destroyed the armies of Pharaoh. We've got songs like the song of Mary, the Magnificat, and here we have the Canticle of Simeon. In the Latin, it's known as the Nunc Dimittis. Nunc Dimittis, why? Because that means now you dismiss. He's being dismissed in peace, and notice what he says. Now let your servant depart in peace. How does he depart in peace? Well, because the babe that's in his arms is the priest, the prince of, priest, of peace, 
The Prince of Peace is epiphanied. He's revealed there according to God's full, long, prophetic, biblical promises. You see that there according to your word. The fullness of the Old Testament. The words of the prophets. The signs and symbols. The, the temple. The miracles. The sacrifices. The priest. His garments. All these things are pointing forward to the coming of Messiah. This little baby that's being blessed before the Lord. He goes on and says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Your salvation. The baby in the arms is named Jesus Jesus, Jesus in the Greek, in the Hebrew, Yehoshua. His name in the Hebrew is Joshua. Joshua, Yehoshua means Yahweh is salvation. Verse 31, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory of your people Israel. The incarnation, friends, happened in the middle of history, in the middle of the world. God really came in the flesh. In the middle of history, at the right time, in the providence of God, in the right place, in Israel that was at the very crossroads of the world, at the very time when the Roman Empire is ruling over the civilized world, and everybody's speaking Greek, and there's roads going everywhere, and there's sea lanes so the good news can go forth at the right time. We see in the long prophetic biblical promises of God in the middle of the world, God has really come in the flesh. Christ is revealed and epiphanied to the Gentiles. The veil over the nations has been removed. God's been dealing with the Jews all this time. There's Gentiles coming in. There's people like Jethro and the Ninevites in the days of Jonah. But primarily God is revealing himself, showing his covenant, preparing the way for the coming of Messiah through Israel. And now through Messiah, we see that Christ will be revealed to the nations. Jesus was born a Jew among Israel. He is the glory, the doxa, the fullest expression of the honor and splendor of Israel. Jesus was the ultimate Jew that fulfills all of what that means. In verse 33, his father and mother marveled at what had been said about him. Mary and Joseph marveled. In one short year, they had seen angels come and bring prophetic announcement. You're going to have a child. The child's going to be the savior of the world. They'd experienced the virgin birth. They had seen shepherds come in from their fields saying that they had seen choirs of angels. Wise men, magi, had come from kings of the east to bring wondrous royal presence and to let them know that the outside world knows that Messiah is coming and Messiah is your son. They'd been delivered from Herod. And now this, epiphany upon epiphany, verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that many thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Simeon turns his prophetic gift to Mary. It's interesting here that he addresses Joseph and Mary a second ago, but now he turns his attention to Mary. Through his prophetic gift, by the power of the Spirit, he must have known that Joseph would not be alive when these things unpacked themselves. He will be a sign. He will be a sign. Sign in Greek is semeon. It's a miracle that authenticates and confirms something larger than itself. Think of the various signs of the Old Testament. The burning bush. The curses poured out on Egypt. The widow of Zarephath's son raised from the dead. Jesus himself is the sign. 
Jesus himself is the ultimate sign, the sign of which all the signs of the Old Testament were pointing forward to, an enfleshed sign that brings a violent deluge of righteousness and justice and opposition from the world. And he says these words to prepare Mary. Now notice what he says here. The sword will pierce through your own soul also. It's interesting. She doesn't use, or he doesn't use the word here for the Roman stabbing sword. That's what you'd think it might be. Oftentimes that word makara, makaira, would have been used, and it's also synonymous with the priest's knife slash sword. It's, a, it's an instrument that's used with precision here. But the word here for the sword is ramphaya. The ramphaya was the great Thracian sword for the soldiers of Thrace. Big, long things, five, six foot in length. They almost look like some sort of agricultural instrument. You can see pictures of these in carvings on shells. They would come in lined up in their phalanx with these giant ramphaya, and they'd, they'd hack through their enemy like they were using skiss going through grain. Ramphaya will pierce your own soul, Mary. Why the ramphaya? The sorrow and insight will be great and wide. Verse 36, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Here we have an old prophetess. She's been waiting in Jerusalem. She's in the temple grounds, but she's outside the garden of the Holy of Holies. She was married for seven years. Kids, do you remember what seven's about? The number of completion, right? She was married for seven years, and then she became a widow. Her husband died, and now she's 84 years old. Wow, this is interesting stuff. Again, numbers and details in the scripture are not superfluous. God doesn't waste bandwidth with details. She's 84 years old. She was married for seven, and she's been widowed. What's 84 divided by seven? Twelve. Hmm. What's that about? Twelve. The twelve tribes. She's Israel. She's the old bride. She's at the end of this long age. Completion has arrived. But there's more, friends. Verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him and to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The old widow Israel cries out to Israel to see that the age has ended and the new is broken in. The old widow and the old prophet, an old man, an old woman. Isn't that interesting? They're worn out. They're standing outside the garden, the temple with its forbidden tapestry woven in with the cherubim, what's this about? Friends, I submit to you that they are the old Adam and Eve. They symbolize and represent the old Adam and Eve. But guess what? The new, the last Adam is here. And the new Eve is here too. It's Jesus and Mary. And he will bring us all back into the garden again. Can I hear an amen to that? Verse 39, when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The epiphany ended. Jesus goes into obscurity, the obscurity of Nazareth and Galilee, to prepare for his epiphany as Messiah. The epiphanic process that will end with the last Adam enthroned on a cross 
and shredding the veil in two, the veil that blocks the garden of the Holy of Holies, Jesus will bring us back into the garden and the presence and pleasure of God. Praise his holy name. As one travels across the dry, desolate sands of the empty quarter desert in Saudi Arabia, a miraculous vision suddenly epiphanies from the wastelands, a giant garden, more properly an oasis, the Al-Aqsa Oasis, the largest oasis in the world, rises with millions of palm trees and many springs of bubbling water. It is a garden in a desert. The Garden of Eden, which humanity was banned from after the fall, returned in symbolic form in the Old Covenant Temple. But the arrival of Jesus the Christ brought a series of epiphanies that ends with the barrier to the garden being brought down through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we now have access to the garden through the church via the unstoppable march of the kingdom of God. The garden is spreading across the desert of this age until all the world shall be a garden and heaven will come to earth. This morning in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen garden epiphany. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Son, your Son, the only begotten Son, Come into the world to tear down the veil to bring us back into the garden and your presence once again, clean and forgiven. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.